Um, what's a, how are we going to make like an two, audio reference three, point for how it all begins? Is there like a snap we can do like that that kind of alerts it? Or will... um, I think that I think that we've already started actually. I think the, the, the point where we're going to begin this episode is a little while back. Welcome everybody. Uh, it's good to, to have you on the show again this week. See what I did there? You did that to me last time. Oh, dude. Are we going to do that again? No, we don't have to. But if we did, it'd be all right. How, how about we just keep going? I like this. This let's keep going. It's a, it's it's a good flow. We're we're kind of unnatural, um, stilted people, so it's good that the beginning of our podcast kind of has a similar feel to it. I like it. I like that continuity. Well, let's dive in with a little bit of Wilmore, man. So something that's been popping up in Wilmore um, for years now. Um, I can find kind of the schedules for it going back at least six years. So it's definitely been going on for longer than that. And around the current season that we are in, being that the recording of this episode is taking place on December 27th, but by the time you get this, it might be a little later, but we are still, as you will find out later, very much in the middle of Christmas season. And so this thing that's been going on in Wilmore is called Wilmore's Old Fashioned Christmas. And let me tell you, this is an event that far supersedes any other individual event that I have seen goes on in the tiny town (laughs) of Wilmore. This place where we have our seminary, where the university is across the street, where people go nuts for old-fashioned Christmas. It is a full day of activities. It begins at 7 in the morning and goes until perhaps 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and people are coming out all day for these activities. In fact, a friend of mine who does not even live on campus anymore, he's finished his studies, he's moved out, he comes into town, he drives from Indianapolis to come to Old Fashioned Christmas because he feels like it's such a big thing. And, And I think that that kind of speaks to not only the heart of what people in a town like Wilmore like, but, but Christians in general, there's this sort of pining for this way that things used to be, this sort of proto-perfect past, um, where things were a little more shiny, where things were a little more magical, were a little more simple, and they were able to just celebrate. Um, but what this old-fashioned Christmas essentially turns into is one gargantuan town-wide craft fair, where they're selling <laughs> their crafts, and they have all of their... Christian um, and Christmas inspired knickknacks that they are selling for money and people are coming together in droves to buy this stuff. And it's just incredible. Um, It especially ends with like a lighting ceremony um, with some of the local musicians then playing and a grand finale at the church. So it's a a whole town coming together kind of thing that's very special that you're not really going to see in a city, that you're not going to see in a place that isn't like Wilmore with that small town feel. And I think that it's a good thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with this going back to old-fashioned style Christmas. Um, What I would say is that I just don't think they're getting old-fashioned enough. Welcome to Will, to Will Morons. Well, dude, I love that little town of Wilmore. I think it actually got rained out this year. Am I correct on that one? It got rained in. So instead of having it outdoors the way they normally would, they ended up hosting it inside of the uh, the student center this year. But it still went on. I did not get to see it. So I guess next year I'll have to join that. And maybe we can um, help make it a little more old-fashioned, whatever that looks like. But speaking of more old-fashioned, I'd love to hear more from you, Austin. This week, you've been kind of thinking a lot about kind of 
the development of Christmas and like Christianity and culture. And so is there any, any little tidbits you can give us on that one? Yeah. So one of the big reasons that we have to have this idea of an old-fashioned Christmas is that apparently there's something going on wrong with a new-fashioned Christmas, with the way that it's celebrated currently. And I don't think that you have to be a Christian or at seminary to realize how sort of commercialized Christian uh, Christmas celebrations have become, or Christmas around the world. Jesus is the reason for the season. (laughs) Yes. In (laughs) fact, someone um, told my mom that the way that they tell people Merry Christmas now is to emphasize the Christ. So the way it comes out across is Merry Christmas, which my mom just felt like someone stubbed their toe in the middle of wishing happy holidays. And so they just end up telling you a Merry Christmas. And it's very confrontational and in your face. This is a holiday about Christ. Put the Christ in Christmas. (laughs) I mean, you've heard of the war on Christmas, right? Everyone knows about the war on Christmas. I know. I've been there. I don't go to Starbucks anymore just because of that. Still to this day. Still to this day. Mostly for the coffee quality, but there's also that small subliminal reason as well. (laughs) I mean, where were you when you learned that war had been declared on Christmas? Where, Where did you first hear that term? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It goes back for a while now. I I, I remember it being on the news. Probably the first time that I heard it was maybe a decade ago. And it was because someone had been told happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas at a bank. And there's this idea that, you know, like true Christians are going to celebrate the Christ in Christmas. That that Christmas is an absolutism of Christian celebration that everyone needs to recognize. I mean, you got Christmas and Easter. That is the two biggest Christian festivals, holidays in the world. In fact, you know, in the United States, we've dropped to maybe 30% regular church attendance. Um, 30% of people in America would identify as like a regularly practicing Christian. But on Christmas Eve, six out of 10 Americans attend some sort of church service. Uh, that's according to, according to Pew Research. I just Dang. found that to be like a pretty astronomically high number. I mean, that six out of ten people are attending some sort of Christian service on Christmas Eve. But Christianity's relationship with Christmas has never been so certain. Like, it, it, is, it has never been an, an absolute thing that's just very solid that suddenly we in the modern age have lost. In fact, I think that in reading the history, we'd find that Christianity's relationship with Christmas is an incredibly sordid affair. Mm. Yeah. How how, is there any specific insights you have looking back? Because it's kind of it's kind of interesting when it comes to Christmas. Uh, A lot of people will try to emphasize how a lot of the modern rituals and and celebratory elements are what they would consider more pagan than religious and so some some Christians have seen this kind of emphasis of purging it of, of, of anything that's intrinsically not religious or not religious in a Christian sense. And so is, do you have any insights looking back on that type of focus? Yeah. I mean, and everyone's quick to point out like, oh, you know, Christmas trees, etc., the winter solstice, Christianity just co-opted this already existing pagan holiday. Um, and there's there's some truth to that. You know, we have definitely, in, in the same way that Christians do a lot of time, we've incorporated and, you know, you could even say redeemed parts of cultures that it more reflects Christianity. But even looking back into the apostolic church, um, the history of Christmas didn't necessarily grow out of that winter solstice. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you've got people like the the idea that Christianity picked December 25th because of the solstice um, was actually set forth by Sir Isaac Newton. He's the earliest person to have written about that. But Irenaeus, one of the oldest um, Christian father writers in AD 200, actually wrote that mm. Christ was born on December 25th. Um, all of his contemporaries disagreed with them. They they thought it was probably closer to um, mm-hmm. mid March or early April. But Irenaeus himself was the first one that we have in writing to mark that day. Mm. However, it wasn't really celebrated then. Um, he said that we should be glad, you know, Christ was born on this day. But there wasn't this idea of a festival um, until a little bit later. Mm. And what I specifically wanted to bring up from that was the fact that. Uh, Christianity decided really up until uh, Charlemagne made it a national feast for the Holy Roman Empire in about Mm. 800 AD that Christianity was outlawed from celebrating the Christmas festival. And I think that's pretty wild. And when I said earlier, I don't think we get old fashioned enough. It's because I really want to bring us back to the way that it was celebrated in the early church. Uh, are you familiar at all with kind of the, the Christmas pageants and the festivities that went on around that time? I'm actually not that familiar. I love to keep learning, man. So I'm talking a whole lot on this one, but we're going to no, get keep to, going. It's to more of your insights later for sure. But around uh, the Middle Ages, the way that Christianity celebrated Christmas was considered by uh, people of the time, by contemporaries, as the most drunken and debauched celebration in Christendom. Mm. Because it was an entire 12 days where people would just get completely obliterated celebrating the birth of this Christ. It was set (laughs) forward by the Holy Roman Emperor, who was neither holy nor Roman nor a real emperor. So, Mm. you know, they loved to party in this place. And they would, every single year, someone would be appointed as the Lord of Misrule. Um, This was very common in England. In Scotland, it was called the Abbot of Unreason. Or in France, you might have had the Prince de Saltz. And this person was the head of all things partying. Mm. And from December 17th to the 23rd especially, um, they would appoint this person to be the leader of festivities. And it would just be so incredibly wild. So are you saying that it got lit? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying I'm saying that the Christmas tree got lit. That is Dude, exactly what I'm saying. It sounds like back in the day it got lit for Christmas, man. Wow. All of this led up to about in the 13th century um, that the Pope banned the celebration in this style and that it was outlawed to appoint a Lord of Misrule. And <laughs> essentially there was a moratorium put on so Christmas. Was there kind of a was there kind of almost like a debauchery? Was it so celebratory it actually began to like were the were the moral values kind of corroded? Or was this just something so rich and celebratory and enjoyable that eventually the church was like, this is a little too much fun for the people of God and kind of had to, you know, put the lowdown on it. It's about six of one, half a dozen of the other. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. that those are both very reasonable factors in it. Of course, people can't be told that they can't have celebrations when they want to. So Christmas continued. And then during the Reformation in the 16th, 17th century um, was when the idea of the Christ Kindle came along. Because people had been celebrating um, the giving of gifts because of the Feast of St. Nicholas, which takes place on December 3rd. Well, of course, why have two holidays when you just have one big one? So they combined mm. St. Nicholas's feast into the celebration of Christ's birth on the 25th, and you would give gifts. 
Um, in order to try and bring it back to Christ, the first group that was put Christ back in Christmas um, was the Protestant reformers, especially the puritanical kind. And they created the idea of the Christ child gift giver. And so on December 6th or the 25th, there was no longer a Sinterklaas or a St. Nicholas that was giving you gifts. It was Christ Kindle, which was eventually kind of deformed in English as Chris Kringle. So there you go. There's a little bit of fun fact uh, trivia for you to take away. So, so, but the Puritans ended up trying to ban the celebration of this like Chris Kindle, this Chris Kringle style celebration in England, um, just throughout Christian history. Hmm. So, just curious, how did how how what was the kind of development between Saint Nicholas and this kind of more modern appropriation Santa Claus that you know we either grew up hearing about or you know, in believing or didn't believe in. So the idea of Santa, of Santa Claus came from St. Nicholas, like you said, and he was the patron saint of children and of giving gifts. So there was this idea that, you know, on December 6th, his feast, you would celebrate him by giving gifts to each other. It was mostly like between landlords and their tenants. The tenants Mm. would give a gift to their landlord as a thank you for allowing them to live there. So pretty different from the way we give gifts now. That kind of fell out of style, out of vogue, like I said, as the more Puritan party started to push out the non-Christ-centered celebrations in Christmas. And um, when they came over to the New World, most of the religion was of the basis of the pilgrims and the Puritans. Um, They didn't want any kind of Christian Christmas celebration. Um, Banning it from about 1647 was the earliest. Um, The ban was revoked in about 1681, and they were allowed to celebrate Christmas again. Mm. Now... A lot of the colonists that were in the New World that weren't English were Dutch. And so as part of keeping with their Dutch heritage, they brought back the idea of the Sinterklaas, the St. Nicholas giving, um, which then developed into the Englishization to Santa Claus. Mm. They would give gifts to each other. And so it's probably more of the modern construct that kind of this idea of Santa Claus developed where you have this kind of figure lives at the North Pole, comes, sneaks down your chimney, even that's more this modern architecture and then gives you gifts. And, and then I'm sure, I'm sure as like kind of cultural develops, all these little add-ons happen. Is that, is that more of a modern thing in the last two to 300 years or even 150 years? What's amazing about Christmas is that it seems to be the convergence of about 10,000 different strings of celebrations (laughs) that occurred amongst just very different, these celebration ideas that grew up completely separate from each other, but have now converged in this, like, globalized American idea of Christmas. Mm. The, The Yule Log... Um, that's an old Viking Nordic way to celebrate. Yeah. Um, the Christmas tree was an old Northern German celebration of new life through yeah. winter. Um, you have the Yule boar. So, I mean, even talking with my parents about this idea, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember having the Christmas boar like a long mm. time ago. And, and and that was a celebration originally where uh, Northern Germans and Scandinavians would have someone dressed up like Odin who would chase down a <laughs> boar and stab it with a spear and everyone would celebrate by eating it. And that was like their <laughs> winter celebration. Yeah. And so what do we do on Christmas? We have a big ham, you know? Yeah. Like even that comes from all these converging strings mm. of eclectic beliefs 
which all became our modern celebration Mm. of Christmas. So yeah, so what you're saying, basically, it sounds like this kind of American appropriation that we grew up in, at least for me growing up in Missouri, you know, in the early 2000s, is really drawing from a lot of different European traditions. And some of them emerge in the church, a lot of them emerge in the secular context. And so there's this cultural development where all these different strains are converging. And so we find ourselves in this pretty complicated um, cultural um, holiday. Incredibly. I, I feel like there might not be a more complicated and kind of murky past celebration than Christmas in Christendom. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think one of the takeaways for me, just kind of hearing this, some of this is some stuff I know. Um, I've actually been to Europe and and honestly, I think like even being in Germany, like nobody celebrates Christmas better than Ali's family and friends I have in Germany. It's just amazing. All these traditions go back. They kind of come over to the States and they feel like it's very um, consumerized and very kind of, very kind of, you know, very artificial. It doesn't have that same type of kind of local um, long-standing tradition that that they experience it as, but I I think like Christmas is is there's this convergence, and I think when it, at least when it comes to Christians Christians that are listening to this podcast, there's kind of this tension I think just going back, and it's not just on holidays or Christmas or these type of cultural developments, but it's on theology and and ethics and all these different type of strands. There's this tension between being quote unquote to use the words of Jesus, you know, the Christ and Christmas. Christmas um, is being <laughs> being in the world but not of the world, and and so there's this kind of tension there. Or you can even um, go later. I believe it was was it Athanasius that, um, or maybe it was Justin Martyr, but one of the early church fathers um, discussed, you know, the tension between. Or no, excuse me, it's Tertullian. All you uh, patristic historical theologians, uh, I, I think I got that one right. Tertullian he talked about the tension between you know, Greece or you know, Athens and Jerusalem. So he's like, what has Athens have to do with Jerusalem? And so going back early in the church, there's this kind of tension between the more Jewish religious roots of the faith and this wider quote unquote air quotes, pagan culture or, you know, Greco Roman culture. And, and you can stretch that into the future, more European culture. And so for some people there's there, they grow up in contexts where it's, it's very wrong for that mixing to take place, that that kind of cultural fusion, if you if I can put it that way. For other people, they grew up in families where it was modeled in, in, a, in a really good way and there was nothing weird about it. You know, yeah, I'm having a Christmas ham and there's this kind of this development, but I'm not dressing up as Thor or we're not we're, I'm not participating in this kind of, you know, polytheistic culture, whatever you have it. And so um I think there's that there is that tension, and so you find a lot of Christians, you know, have those debates today between you know, well, do you know that's not even Christian? Do you know that's not even Christian? And it's, um, and I think it's very interesting because I I like to think about it from the other side. Is Christians are very can be sometimes concerned about that fusion and that mixing and development. But I think it's very interesting for secular people or people from other religious groups. You have to think it about their perspective. You almost have an entire month of the year that despite all of the pagan quote air quotes, you know, like, you know, influences, you have a whole month of the year dedicated to a Christian holiday that is all about the birth of Christ and and in the incarnation. And so it's almost it's like kind of I want sometimes I go, hey, can we get like a little bit? 
thicker skin and be a little more culturally nuanced here because for all the people that don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God in the flesh, they still embrace the spirit and essence of Christmas, which is that peace, that goodwill, that charity, that generosity. And that in a sense, even for people who are secular, that kind of sense of what you could say is the mystery and the magic and something that is bigger than the natural world, something that that really, in a sense, feels like, quote unquote, magical. And so I think all of those things happen during the Christmas season. And I like to think, hey, if they're going to extend that charity and cultural nuance, my direction, not being a Christian, to enter into this and really enjoy it and appropriate it and make it a part of their lives, then then surely I can have the charity and the nuance to to not be tripped up that it happened to be a secular culture per se that you know used the yeah. tree or and it, and it's not even fully fair to say that because this wasn't a secular culture this was a christian culture pulling from a longer quote unquote pagan tradition and as you can say appropriating it um translating it and to use the really religious term, redeeming it, it sounds kind of condescending. You know, it's like, yeah. we're redeeming your trees. <laughs> but hey, man, trees are trees. But um, and they're awesome. But I think I think what happens is, is we have to be honest that both sides have appropriated things from the religious context and a secular context. And it's actually created this really lovely time of the year, a, a whole month of the year that has this, what I would say is the best of the human essence. And for the, those that are Christians, it's that the reality that God has embraced humanity. It, it, you, it's hard to be a Christian and to not be in the in the best sense a humanist. And it's often we the word humanism is often used as this pejorative today. You know, all those humanists over there. But it's interesting. The, the first humanists were Christians. You know, you look at like Erasmus who was a Catholic, was was considered one of the early humanists. And it, there was this embrace of culture that these these Renaissance Christians were, were almost, they helped create this Renaissance by finding ancient Greek texts and, and really owning culture and, and helping restore and revitalize that. And so the early humanists were Christians. And so I, I'll say it, I'll say it loud and proud. I'm a humanist. And I don't mean that as a Amen. not not as a humans are good and only good. No, there's a complex picture of human beings. We are beautiful and we're broken and we're beautiful and we're broken. And so but what I want to say is that it's hard. It, you can not call yourself a humanist, but it's hard to not in, a, in, in terms of how you participate. It's hard not to participate in Christmas and actually be a humanist because it brings it brings some, you know, maybe negative things out of people, this kind of hyper consumerism. But at the same time, it brings a lot of the lovely human virtues out of people. And for me, the incarnation, which is the religious center of Christmas for Christians, and, and even culturally, it's the center of it all. The nativity scene is not going anywhere, um, despite, you know, you know, the coffee cups at Starbucks. But the incarnation <laughs> is the affirmation of the human that God, the creator God who made the world and loves the world is now one of us. And I think that's a huge thing. And it kind of exists at the crux of Christmas is that Christians historically have been best when we are loving people where they are. 
And yeah. and that's really the history of Christmas. If you if you want to put the Christ back in Christmas, hmm. it, it's really not a call to command that other people stop and start doing what you're doing. It's hmm. to do what Christians did historically and join them where they are and show them how God has been loving them through that. Yeah. You know, the Christians didn't say, stop putting these evergreen trees in your house. They said, look at how this tree, and this was actually like what the contemporaries of the time said, look at how this tree points to God. And when we put a star at the top, then it is leading you to him even today. You hmm. might not have known it, but in that moment, when you were still celebrating in the ways you always did, God was appearing to you there. Hmm. And now we make it plain to you. When we had the celebration of St. Nicholas, everyone loves to give and receive gifts, but what they're saying is, look at this ultimate gift we were given on Christmas, and that sounds cliche, but it's so true. We didn't say, stop giving gifts. We said, start recognizing that when you get gifts, it's in remembrance Mm. of Jesus. You know that Christians are best when we love people where they are. Yeah. That that's really good. I I think the thing to distill from from this the first part of our conversation is that it's ironic that in our attempts to to how would I say it to purify Christmas or to 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 kind of reduce it to its purest most central aim, which for Christians is the incarnation. Often the way we go about doing that is in a way that's very non-incarnational. And I oh, think absolutely. and I think that's an irony. And I think that can sink in for Christians and for secular people cuz they get to watch our charades online and when we are offended at Starbucks because of this thing. And I'm not if you know if I want to say to the listeners if you didn't go to Starbucks because of their plain red mugs, I'm not saying you're wrong. What I do disagree. But what I, what I will say is that often when we're at that moment where we're triggered, where we're going, I'm watching a culture that seems to be more secular, as you pointed out, church attendance numbers, and I'm not seeing them get what Christmas is all about. Often the, what we have to sit back and go is, am I going about this in a way that actually reflects the essence of the incarnation? And I think that's the real yeah. irony. And so I, I think that we should be looking at the season of Christmas through that lens of the incarnation, the God who embraces humanity and who gets down in the world in humility and loves the world. And I think, you know, that story in Luke where the angels in the story, you know, they say peace and goodwill to all men. It's really interesting because if there's really two things I think really mark the Christmas season at its best is that idea of peace and goodwill. And I think that's a really lovely thing. And I think that's how Christians should try to engage with culture and engage with the development of Christmas is through that lens of peace and goodwill. And even in you know, in First Peter, Peter talks about living peaceably among men and praying for your kings and living in this yeah. way that doesn't disturb the common order, but lives in a way that reflects a peace and a goodwill. Mm. And that doesn't mean there isn't room for healthy protests and justice. And the same Bible that contains that, that verse contains the prophets who stand up against, even Christ, who stand up against, you know, those, those powers and, and say, this is what's just and you're not in the right here. But this, the same tension is this peace and goodwill. And so I think looking at this development, I think if we look at it through the lens of the incarnation, we might find ourselves thinking and feeling about it in different ways. And what I would argue is a more 
childlike and charitable lens. Absolutely. Because when you're looking at Christmas and you're desiring that peace and that goodwill, there's a recognition that you need that because you don't have it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and looking at things through that, that childlike lens, you, you kind of see things for the way they really are instead of this uh, desire for the way they've been. You know, that when you are looking at the history of Christianity and Christmas, when you're looking at the history of the holiday and of the people who made it, it's a very messy thing. Mm. And I think that it's that way by design. You know, I was, the other day, I was looking at a nativity scene, one of those porcelain, beautiful nativity scenes, and I was stricken by the idea that it's so easy to look at Christmas through that same lens, that it was this perfect holy night. I mean, even the songs reference that, that it was still. And I I love the funny line that it's like, oh, baby Jesus, no crying he makes. I don't know if that's necessarily true. He was a newborn baby. He probably cried a lot. When we Mm -hmm. look at Christianity the same way that this pining for old-fashioned Christmas, this way where we have a sterilized, distilled down to its pure essence, that there is Mm -hmm. nothing besmirching the picture of Christmas and it's perfectly Christmas, then we lose the fact that Jesus was not born into posh, perfectly clean situations. Hmm. He was not a sterile, beautiful, silent porcelain baby, but instead he was born into a dirty, essentially hotel garage because there was no room for him. To two parents who would later be illegal immigrants seeking asylum in Egypt so that their government wouldn't kill Mm. them. Because Jesus was born into a government that wanted him to die in an empire that wanted to erase him. To two parents who didn't know what to do with him. And it was not this perfectly polished, cleaned idea. There was no distillation going on in that time. It was Mm. just true life, messy with the people who were there. And and I and I think that is the big tech takeaway for me, even moving forward. Because I know you know some people are going, "Hey, I love this little Christmas rant," but it's Christmas was you know a few days ago, and and we're we're going to kind of dive into twelve days of Christmas, and it's the third day of Christmas, so we get a pass. But I, I think right. for me, the takeaway moving forward is entering the world and entering that, that darkness. And I think if there's any critique that can be made of a modern appropriation of Christmas is that it seems that it's become about, in some sense, a consumerism rather than a charity. And, and I think that's not the full picture because in another sense, it's really about generosity. People love to give. And when is there another time of the year where you have a, a cultural reason to just give to people closest to you <laughs> yeah. and not just one person like a birthday, but literally those people closest to you, family and friends. I think that's really lovely. But what I would say is to the degree that we have in our culture fallen to the, the pitfall of commercializing um, and capitalizing Christmas per se and making it about consumerism, I think the answer isn't protesting the consumerism. I think it's modeling the charity, meaning to the degree that's true of you, then and true of me, is the degree that we should as people go, what does it look like to 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 model that Christ-likeness, that incarnation, that entering the suffering and darkness of the world in humility, not the perfect, pristine, beatific vision, that perfect picture that sometimes those hymns seem to to hint at with Jesus' birth, but to enter that. And I actually, I think that is, in a lot of ways, the the essence of, of Christmas. And I think I think that is the best way to go about it. There are some issues we are called to protest, but I think when it comes to Christmas, the better answer is not protesting the excesses or deficiencies, 
but I think it's just entering the world and loving and modeling that. And that is what speaks to people at their core. And that is what's most meaningful. And, and so I, I think that is how, in my opinion, Christians should go about it. And, and so that's kind of, I'll those are kind of my final words on the uh, the spirit of Christmas, Christmas. There's our there's our big opinions that we've we've dumped out for you guys. Uh, of course, <laughs> we would rather have your discussion than to prescribe to you exactly what to do at Christmas. Um, so, of course, in that vein, now that we're giving opinions uh, and we've given you this nice messy plate full of Christmas sloppings, uh, what do we do with this? I think that we were going to talk a little bit about you know now that we have this kind of like historical understanding we've got this more humanistic understanding of christmas the question on everyone's minds what do i do with santa claus and christmas music yeah i i have a few thoughts on that um let me start with christmas music i have a philosophy Ooh, for let's Chris- go there for christmas music uh, we'll hit these pretty quick because we've done our we've done our soapbox of moralizing um i hope i hope <laughs> all of you are persuaded I hope all of you have caught a new vision for how to move forward. And in 362 days, you can be a new person. Um, but for now, Santa Claus, hopefully maybe there's some parents that were struggling this year or, or people that have just, they've been asking this question. And so here are a couple of my thoughts. When it comes to Christmas music, this is my opinion. This is going to ruffle some feathers. I, I don't crucify people who think otherwise. It's okay. Do your thing. You do you. That is our cultural anthem. But let me. He won't execute you. He won't do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I would prefer not to go to prison. So, but I'll, let me say this. When it comes to Christmas music, I like to give Thanksgiving its full and lovely shakedown before I move on. It's kind of like going out with two people at the same time. You know, at the beginning of the relationship, it's a little bit of a gray area, but uh, it's not the best thing. And so I give Thanksgiving my full shakedown. I enjoy it. I eat that turkey. I watch my football games. I do my thing. And then the next day, it's Christmas time. Oh, it's on. That's how I do it. Now, some people, they're, they're listening October and September. Some people, they're like year round. But I like to give Thanksgiving its full shakedown. It's only one day. And then I give Christmas kind of my full go. And I, I like to remind people that the 12 days of Christmas start on December 25th. A lot of people think there's kind of a countdown to Christmas, but it's actually, they start on Christmas Day. So you can go from December 25th all the way to January 5th. Then January 6th, you have Three Kings Day. So then you get another day. January 7th is the Orthodox celebration of Christmas. Greek Orthodox, Coptic, Russian Orthodox, they celebrate so Christmas. So true Christmas. Yeah, true Yeah, exactly. Christmas. The, the way you get back to the pure roots, because they are the first um, holy tradition. Um, <laughs> and the Catholics. Um, both of you are right. Just kidding. Um, but And so that can stretch out for another 12 days. So here's my big point. You don't have to go into January. You don't have to celebrate the 12 days. You don't have to do Three Kings Day. You don't have to join along with the Orthodox. But if you are going to stretch Christmas out, I think it is most appropriate to stretch it out on the back end than the front end. That's my kind of Christmas music philosophy. Do you actually do that? Do you listen to Christmas music after Christmas? I, I listen to it up to around New Year, um, New Year's Eve. I, it's hard. Like in January, it starts to kind of wane. Um, but yeah. I will say if it snows January 2nd, Winter Wonderland feels better on January 22nd. 
I'm sorry, January 2nd, than it does, you know, December 14th, but it's 69 degrees outside. So, you know, it just really depends. I vacillate. But um, my, my, bigger, okay. my bigger principle is stretch it out on the back end rather than the front end. And if you're like, hey, I, after Christmas Day, I'm done, you do you. You don't even have to listen to Christmas music. But, I, it, you know, I'd rather people listening up into January when it's still the 12 days of Christmas, you still have Three Kings Day, than like it's October 2nd and you're just walking around playing Jingle Bells. I love you. Yeah. We all love you. You're probably you're a dignified human being made in the image of God. But um yeah, I I I can't join you in that. I can't. Oh yeah, I can't do that either. You know, <laughs> I I try and avoid Christmas music until about a week at most two leading up to Christmas, and that's about as long as I could take it. I really enjoy Christmas music, but I'm not going to listen to it other times of the year. I mean, even working at the coffee shop, a lot of times I'd come in, whoever's working before me was playing Christmas music. i generally change it over. Yeah. Uh, because in my mind, Christmas music and really a lot of Christmas celebrations are the most meta holiday celebrations in existence. It is the most self-referential holiday that (laughs) Americans celebrate. I could be sitting down in my kitchen eating a cookie in the shape of a Christmas tree listening to a song about how good Christmas bells sound. I mean, just think about that. I'm eating a cookie in the shape of something else that you use to celebrate the holiday. Listening to songs about how much they like to use other songs to celebrate the holiday. At that point, you're so many steps removed from what the actual holiday is going on you're essentially celebrating the fact that you like to celebrate yeah it is true it, i it, love it though i i'm the guy though that like i have my birthday but then I have my birth week and i have my birth month <laughs> like i don't have celebrations for my birthday on my birthday because like then it's all wasted so i'm like let i always stretch it out so i'm like a stretch it out guy um, I don't know if you're like, just get it done, my birthday. You're like, a slow burn. I like one big. I like a big celebration all at once rather than just like a slow burn for a long time. So I like to stretch it out more. Uh, more of like a birthday week. I think it's obnoxious when it's two weeks later and you're already like asking for a free Sundays. It's just like, come on. like. But <laughs> I mean, if you're going to lie, just lie. I, I do it all the time. I'm scared. I'm, but, um, He's I, lying right now. I just lied right there. Thanks for catching that. But... Yeah, my point is if you're going to stretch it out, stretch it out on the back end. You actually have historical precedent and you're actually celebrating along with hundreds of millions of people around the world, not just yourself um, and the, all the others that think October 2nd is like the best day to listen to Jingle Bells. But segueing to Santa Claus. This oh, is, what a good segue. This is a, that was a lovely segue, man. Um, I, should have, I should have referenced the Santa Claus song there. October 2nd, they're listening to Santa Claus, you know, comes to town or whatever. Anyway, so messed that one up. But here we go. Let me uh, let me ask you this: What are what is your opinion on Santa Claus, Austin? And how were oh, you man. raised? So, it, personally, I was raised with my parents wanting me to believe in Santa Claus for much longer than I actually did. But much <laughs> to their chagrin, I did not believe in Santa Claus for a very long time. I think my sister believed in Santa for longer than I did. That's not to smite her at all. She's probably a lot more intelligent than I am, but. I feel like I figured out pretty early on, maybe around three years old, that there was no way that Santa Claus was going to, A, be able to go around the whole world, uh, B, give me 
the gifts that were approximately what I asked for or see even fit into the chimney. So I then proceeded to go on and tell everyone else in my life, including all the other little kids at church, that Santa Claus was not real, leading to my father, their pastor, uh, receiving a lot of hate mail and uh, in-person conflict visits from the people in the church who were very upset that I had ruined their their, uh, Christmas celebrations. (laughs) What type of uh, Christian, uh, like, tradition or denomination did you grow up in? Uh, United Methodist. Okay, got it. So my family was United Methodist going back, but I grew up more evangelical charismatic. So it was more of the opposite, which was like Santa Claus was not a good thing. I Most of the people listening to this podcast from my kind of social circle are probably more like the, you know, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? You know, like, let's get back to the, you know, the more like, you know, strictly pure religious thing. So I, I think my, my family was more like, we can't really tell people we celebrate Santa Claus perhaps. Um, if I'm, maybe I'm right with that one, but my parents tried to do like a hybrid between Santa Claus and St. Nick and kind of tried to be like, you know, St. Nick comes down the chimney and gives you the gift and they would wrap like one gift and it'd be from Santa Claus, but then the rest would be from them. So, you know, my dreams were dashed. I knew that my parents were generous all along, but the problem for me is I'm a lot like you. I kind of feel bad that we both have this story. It doesn't mix it up as much, but very skeptical. Around the age four or five, I I just realized, kind of like you, Santa Claus can't fit down this chimney, and my parents locked the doors and the windows, so if he's if he's coming in and giving us gifts, he's vandalizing our property, and that's a, breaking the law, and Santa Claus has to be a good guy, and I kind of just was like, he's not real. And so, yeah, I also was a little little horrible kid and broke kids dreams. And I actually, I actually ruined it for my brothers. Cause my first two or three Christmases that I remember had Santa Claus involved and it was really awesome. My brothers never got that experience because my parents couldn't teach it because I was just like vocally adamant that Santa Claus wasn't real. So I not only, wow, ru- you're the party pooper. I know. Yeah. I not only ruined other people's Christmas, I actually ruined my brother's Christmases. And here's the thing. I could, I didn't remember all this till my, my parents told me this a few days ago. I was under the pretense that we didn't learn about Santa Claus growing up. And I really, I was really like, cause I was only three or four when it was happening. So I really thought my parents just like, didn't teach us it. And they were like, no, Samuel, we tried and you ruined it for your brothers and us. And I'm just like, oh dang. Cause I remember after seven or eight, I told everyone that Santa Claus wasn't real. Yeah, you so, just weren't having it. So that is always going to be the downside of teaching your kids Santa Claus is that they're going to find out from either their their little curious, skeptical selves, or they're going to find out from the kids at school that some people don't believe in him. So that's always the kind of the hard part. But I'll say this. This is what I do like about Santa Claus is I just like really honing in on the child's imagination and really taking advantage of that in the most proper, like healthy sense. I, I think that, you know, myth and stories and legends and those things are really exciting. And I think even though there are the sob stories out there where people like, they, they feel like their trust with their parents is like permanently harmed because of this. I feel like, you know, if, excuse the listeners that had that experience. I feel like temperamentally they were going to have that heartbreaking experience with their parents anyway, just at an older age. Like most people don't hate their parents going forward because, you know, they find out at seven or eight that Santa Claus isn't real. But I think most people kind of slowly fade out of it. But during those early years, there's this really, <coughs> there's this really magical, um, kind of this really magical element to it. And so it's funny how a lot of people I know don't like teaching their kids Santa Claus. 
but then like they're like they do the tooth fairy <laughs> you yes. know it's like it's very we're very selective there's something um, else they're going to be teaching their kids i mean it's not like they're going to see their kid has an imaginary friend and go oh no i need to ab- immediately confront my child's belief in their imaginary friend or maybe they won't trust me later mm. you know you play along with it yeah your toys are alive when you play with them yeah, yeah you can you're really driving a race car when you're in the little plastic thing at the park you know mm. like there's there's a lot of suspension of disbelief that we allow for mm. other things but then with like santa claus suddenly it's this huge psychological problem we better address this immediately or our child is ruined for life yeah and i think i think that's an interesting one i think most people they they over a course of a few years they slowly transition and kind of they realize oh this isn't real but because there's all these positive meaningful connections related to these stories it doesn't really come down hard. Like, I don't remember what age I realized, oh my gosh, a fairy's not actually doing this. Mom's sneaking in and throwing a dollar down and taking my <laughs> tooth. But I got a dollar. And it was really fun. And I love the ritual of putting the tooth under my pillow and waking up with a dollar. That's way more Absolutely. cool. That's way more fun than walking up to mom and dad and they're just in a cash register and they go, cha-ching, here's your dollar, take our tooth, you know, and put it in a jar. It's this really unique ritual. And I think Santa Claus is a lot like that. And so, in my opinion, it isn't this incredibly deceptive or dishonest thing. Um, I mean, some people really want to like, they just want to be really clear with my kid, their kids, like, I don't lie to you. And I think, you know, if that's someone's conviction, you know, fair enough. Um, but I, I do think there's kind of a, a magical component to it. I'll, I'll share one really funny anecdote. I have a, I know if I, this week I actually did a Facebook status and I asked people their thoughts. And, you know, some people said they weren't for it. A lot of people said they had great experiences, but kind of early on like us, um, you know, just just kind of realized it wasn't real, but kind of it was a positive thing. But yeah. my favorite story, and it didn't come, it didn't come through the, the, the status, the thread, but it came through <laughs> Messenger was, there's this family and what they did is they wanted to kind of break the news to their kids. Uh, I think they had two kids that Santa Claus wasn't real, but they wanted to do it in a way like a really creative way. So what they did is the dad dressed up as Santa Claus and was eating the cookies, had put the presents out and the kid kind of sees their Santa Claus. They have two kids. The boy sees that Santa Claus is in the living room. So he runs to mom and he goes, he goes, Santa Claus is here. And she's like, are you serious? Oh no, you're not supposed to know that. So she kind of like sneaks them in into the living room and there's this kind of surprise and they realize that Santa Claus is dad. And it's this like really magical moment where they realize all these awesome magical years where they've got all these gifts. They were actually getting it from dad, which everyone learns that everyone realized, oh, the presents from Santa I'm getting from mom and dad. But they like realized it with their dad dressed up eating the cookies. And it was this really positive experience. They had they kind of it engendered love and like affection for their dad. And so like it went on and it seemed like there was no issue and that like that was like the perfect way to break the news to their kids. But lo and behold, second week in the January, kids in first grade and he tells all his classmates that his dad is Santa Claus. His dad specifically. His dad is Santa Claus. His dad is the one going around putting presents in everyone's living room. His dad is the one going down the chimneys. His dad drives the sled, you know, flies in, you know, the whatever, the, whatever you call it. Um, you know what? All those reindeer. See, I don't even, I don't even believe his it. Sleigh, so. maybe? His sleigh, maybe? Yeah, his sleigh. There you go. So, um, which was really funny when he, he had to go home and 
you know, at being seven years old, he didn't really fully catch the metaphor. <laughs> yeah. And their parents had to, <laughs> their parents had to tell him, "Dad isn't Santa Claus." <laughs> oh, that is so perfect. <laughs> oh, so. So anyway. it seems like, at worst, the worst thing you could do to your children um, is to create a really funny story that they'll be able to tell people later. Yeah. And, you know, the point is there's no perfect way that the news could ever be broken to your kids. Just, But at the end of the day, it ends up being this development. And the point is kind of capturing the magic. All right. So to wrap things up, here, here's my advice. If you just want some, some good closing statement on what to do to, to teach your child about Santa Claus. Um, this is something that I found, uh, I read as a very funny kind of unethical life pro tip. So when your children are young, uh, on Christmas, you know, teach them about Santa Claus, about how he brings presents to good children and coal to bad children. Well, on Christmas morning, give all your children coal. Then console them, tell them how sorry you are that Santa must have gotten things wrong, ask them what it is they really wanted. Then, after Christmas is over and everything's on sale, 60-70% off, go and buy all those gifts your children wanted and give those gifts to your kids. Then, either way, whether they still continue to think Santa Claus is real, they'll think he's a real jerk and you're the hero. Or, number two, when they find out Santa isn't real, they won't care because they didn't really like him very much in the first place. That I that is hilarious. It will just it won't work for you, Austin, though, because I just see little Austin Hunter, you know, six years old, and he's just going to be really mad that his mom and dad dumped a bunch of coal in the living room. <laughs> oh yeah, he's going to be he's going to be awful. Uh, just guaranteed, you know, that's going to be the divine retribution for the way that I was when I grew up. But anyways, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been a little bit of a different episode. Um, we're going to get back to sort of our more seminary and Will Moron focused topics in the next episode. But because it's the holidays, everyone's got a lot going on. We thought we'd do a more lighthearted, fun episode, even though this one got pretty serious. But thanks again yeah, for, I'm sorry for I started, listening. Started calling out the atheists, man, and calling out the Christians. We need a fair share of our calling out. I'll say this, man. I Since it's the third day of Christmas, I'm not going to be giving anyone coal. I'm going to walk downstairs, and I'm going to give my mom three French hens. Dead serious. Three French hens. Amen. Two turtle doves and a partridge and a pear tree.